Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. Hi, it's Mike. It's the Saturday show. What an auspicious way to begin. So much different from all the other shows where I I say the date and so forth. I just say it's Saturday because it could be any Saturday because there is a certain timelessness to the show. Well, in fact, one of the segments we will play, as always, is a segment from this week. So while not timeless, it is timely. The time was yeah, a few days ago, but the other one, oh, we crank up the Wayback Machine, which is how Wayback Machines, by definition, work. They are hand-cranked. If you buy a modern Wayback Machine, it uh, doesn't work with a crank, but it's also an oxymoron. And in that old interview which we will be playing first. I interview Bill Browder. He is the American businessman who lived in Russia for a long time and as such began to butt heads with the Russian state and Vladimir Putin until Putin jailed and effectively killed his colleague, Sergei Magnitsky. And in retribution and in the name of justice, Browder inspired the U.S. government to pass the Magnitsky Act, which puts Russian oligarchs and Putin on a watch list. This was five, ten years ago. Since then, Browder has become one of Putin's biggest critics in the United States. He knows what Putin does. He knows how Putin acts. He'll be on the show coming up soon to talk about the latest American efforts to try to sanction oligarchs. But this is an interview from 2015 on the same topic, The other interview that we play is not an interview, it will be a segment based on my love of websites that are just full sentences. So I'm fascinated by the website Iwaspoisoned.com. I also like the website MenWhoLookLikeKennyRogers.com and WasMyCarToad. It's an old one, a Chicago website. You put your license plate number in, you find out if in fact your car was towed. But I digress. Iwaspoisoned.com. Recently had a spate of supposed poisonings from Lucky Charm cereal. We still haven't gotten to the bottom of it, but I examine it in a spiel from earlier this week. But first, my 2015 interview with Bill Browder. Bill Browder is a man who tangled directly with Vladimir Putin. And while he lived to tell about it, that is not true of all of his associates. His story takes him from the status of a brilliant, rich Westerner investing in the newly opened Russian markets to a wanted man hunted down by thugs with ties to the Kremlin. The book is Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. Bill Browder is the man. Hello. Thanks for coming by. Hi. Glad to be here. So... One man's fight for justice. You were thrust into that position, but you went to Russia, not as someone without ideals, but as a capitalist looking to make money. And that's what the time lent itself to. I went to Russia for a strange reason. I I, I come from an unusual American family. My grandfather, Earl Browder, was the general secretary of the American Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s, ran for president on the communist ticket was eventually kicked out of the Communist Party by Stalin. 
persecuted as a communist by McCarthy. Even that, like Stalin doesn't like you, not good enough for McCarthy. And FDR no, was no fan of him either, right, jailed him. So he put, him, he put yeah. my grandfather in jail yeah. um, in 1940 for passport violations and tried to deport my grandmother, who at the time had breast cancer. Um, I had this legacy of, of communism in my family. And it's also a legacy of world superpowers targeting the Browders. Indeed. So <laughs> so my, my grandfather, if, if, the, if he had been living in any other country, he would have been assassinated by Stalin. So... This was my family history, my legacy, and I was going through my teenage rebellion. I was living on the south side of Chicago, and I thought, what's the best way that I could rebel from a family of communists? And uh, I came up with this great idea of putting a suit and tie on and becoming a capitalist. The Alex P. Keaton method, yes. There's no better way to piss off my family than that. And so you work for, eventually, Solomon Brothers? So um, fast forward a number of years, I'm in London working for Solomon Brothers. It was the beginning of the Russian privatization program. They decided that to go from communism to capitalism, the best way they could do that would be to give everything away for free. And so they created this um, voucher privatization program where they where you could basically buy vouchers and then buy, buy shares of Russian companies. And I did the math. And I figured out that these companies traded at a 99.7% discount to Western comparable companies. Right. So BP, the the Russian version of BP or the Russian version of a huge oil company was trading for one third of 1% of what it should be. One third of one cent on the dollar. Yeah, yeah. And so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that, that you know, maybe that's an interesting investment. And that's called a buying opportunity. Um, that was called a buying opportunity. Now, Now, interestingly, at the time that I was seeing this, Everyone thought I was crazy. They thought, what are you talking about? That's Russia. And I said, it it may be Russia, but it's trading at less than one cent on the dollar. I said, all all it has to do is go from horrible to bad. Yeah. And then you make 10 times your money. Right. Now, that's a bet that I would make every day of the week. Mm Mm-hmm. And I did. Yeah. And I, I did, and nobody else did. And so I, I, uh, I eventually quit Solomon. I moved to Moscow, and I set up something called the Hermitage Fund. And we started out, and it just went went like gangbusters, and we eventually became the largest investment fund in Russia. So this is like 95, 96? It started in 96. Yeah. And, um, and we started before the elections in 96 when Yeltsin was running against a communist candidate. And, and the communists said he would, he would renationalize everything if he became president. And so everyone was scared. And then Yeltsin won, and the market doubled and doubled again and doubled again and just kept on doubling. And so we made a lot of money for our investors. Was it on the track to becoming a legitimate place to do business where contracts maybe would be enforced, where there'd be an actual stock market and not, you know, wheelbarrows of uh, vouchers? No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, during the Yeltsin era, um, there was a group of people they called, they're called the oligarchs and 22 guys who basically hijacked the whole place for themselves and took 40% of the economy and left the other 145 million Russians living in destitute poverty. Professors had to become taxi drivers to, to earn a living. Nurses prostituted themselves. Art was being sold off the walls of art museums. It was chaos and terrible. It wasn't anything that resembled goodness, truth, yeah. democracy. So this is, And this is the climate to which uh, Vladimir Putin walks in. So Putin walks in yeah. and he says, I'm going to restore order. Mm-hmm. Which never, is good for you, good for investors. Good for me, good yeah. for investors, good for Russians, yeah. assuming it's true. Mm-hmm. And he started restoring order and I was cheering him on and saying, wow, Vladimir Putin's a good guy. Now I'm going to swoop in here for a second, interrupt our guest Bill Browder and help summarize a few things that happened next in the story. Bill started working to make the cheap Russian companies he's invested in more legit. He used research, he used media, he exposed corruption. And this worked well with Putin, who at the time was interested in stopping asset theft. But then things changed. 
Putin found a way to make the oligarchs profitable to him personally, to pay fealty and literal money to him. Putin grows richer. The work Browder doing was no longer exposing Putin's enemies. Now it's exposing his friends. So guess what? Getting rid of Browder becomes a Putin priority. Okay, now back to Bill. Nine years after he founded Hermitage in Russia. And on November 13th, 2005, I was flying back to Moscow. I had been living there 10 years at this point. I was the largest foreign investor in their country. I had $4.5 billion invested in Russia. They stopped me at the VIP lounge at Sheremetyevo 2 airport, the main Moscow airport. Four guards grabbed me, and they put me in the detention center of the airport. They kept me there for 15 hours. I didn't know whether they were going to send me to Siberia or deport me. And then finally in the morning at 11 a.m., they they grabbed me very quickly, frog-marched me to um, a, a waiting Aeroflot flight, put me on the plane, and deported me to London. Because you're a British citizen. I'm a British yeah. citizen, and, yeah. they, and they declared me a threat to national security, never mm-hmm. to return to Russia again. What happened to your assets? Well, um, so the, the one thing I can tell you about the Russian uh, system and Putin and his regime is they're extremely evil, but they're extremely incompetent at executing their evil. It seems weird, yeah. They're, they're just really bad at getting stuff done because they have C students from D universities with no real motivation doing all the implementation of all these dirty schemes they have. So we actually had 18 months to liquidate all of our assets. We did. I, I sold every last penny I had in Russia and got it all out of the country safely so our clients didn't have their money seized. I evacuated all of my employees I had a sort of skeleton staff of a secretary sitting in an empty office in case one day they, they lifted their fatwa on yeah. me. And I started getting on with other things, saying I'm, I'm done with, with Russia. Only Russia wasn't done with me. 18 months later, uh, June 4th, 2007, I get a call from the, our lone secretary in the Moscow office saying there's 25 police officers here with a search warrant. They want to raid the office. They turned the office upside down completely destroyed it. And 25 more officers raided the office of of an American law firm that I used out there called Mm -hmm. Firestone Duncan. And they turned that office over. And at that office, they had all the documents, the stamps, seals, and certificates for the investment holding companies through which we had invested, which were empty at this point. And those documents were seized. And the next thing we knew, we, we no longer owned our investment holding companies. The companies that we invested our money through had all been using the documents seized by the police, had been fraudulently re-registered into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by really? the police huh. to put his name on these documents. Yeah. So here's this guy, this murderer with his with owning our companies. Now, the companies were empty, but we didn't know what was going on. And we hired a bunch of lawyers to help us, including a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. He was a lawyer who worked for an American law firm. He was the head of their tax practice, mm-hmm. 35 years old, extremely competent guy. You know, there's always like one of these people in every sort of organization, you know, like he can do 10 things in the, in the time it takes everyone to do one. Yeah. He, um, he was the smartest lawyer we knew in Russia. And to make a long story short, his investigation led to this unbelievable discovery, which was that the police and a group of other criminals and other Russian officials and originally intended to steal all of our assets. And they discovered very quickly that there were no assets there. And so they went on to plan B or maybe, maybe it was plan you know, double plan A, which was if we had no assets, they wanted to steal the taxes that we paid the previous year because they were the owner of our shell mm-hmm. investment companies. And those companies had paid $230 million of taxes the previous year when we were liquidating all of our holdings. This group of criminals stole all the taxes we paid, not from us, yeah, but from the Russian government. And Sergei discovered this. And we were all just amazed and shocked because it, that we couldn't believe that 
you know, it's one thing to steal from other people, but to steal from the government, that couldn't, how could that have been sanctioned? And we thought if we just put it out into the open, if we filed a bunch of criminal complaints, if we publicized it, that that these rogue officers would be caught and punished by Putin because he shouldn't be allowing this kind of stuff to happen. And so we did. And that was naive. And we, we were waiting for the good guys to get the bad yeah. guys. There were, there were no good guys. But in 2007, you didn't, you didn't smell that out? I mean, you're this good investor. You the, the, understand the, the, how things work. You're wise enough to liquidate and take your money away. I mean, You've let, already been kicked out of the country once. You know, they're thugs who are running the show. Let me tell you, yeah. there wasn't a, I have a lot of smart people around me, a lot of very smart people. There was not a single smart person around me who could have imagined that the place was as cynical and twisted as we found it to be. He's just taking the tax dollars for himself. He's taking everything, everything, yeah. everything, and, and, and every different type of scam. And we happened into this very much unintentionally. We were victimized by this, but when we were, we exposed it. At this point, we had seven lawyers working for us. They opened criminal cases against every one of our lawyers. I, I thought evacuating my staff was enough, but all of a sudden I was in this situation where I had to evacuate my lawyers. And I go to these guys and I say, you guys, you need to leave. And, and it wasn't an easy conversation to have with any of them. And most of them didn't want to go, but eventually one by one, they left with one exception. Yeah. And that was Sergei Magnitsky. And I begged him to go. My team begged him to go. Um, but he said, no, I've not done anything wrong. And we said, no, but it doesn't matter whether you do anything wrong. They'll still arrest you. He said, no, the law will protect me. He had this belief in the law. And he said, besides, these people have committed a crime against my country, and I want to prosecute them for that crime. And so he stayed, and he gave testimony against the police officers who were present at the raid, because it was obvious that they were connected to the misuse of all these documents. Mm -hmm. One month after his testimony, um, at 8 in the morning, on, in November 24th, 2008, um, he was arrested by, the same, uh, by, by three, three subordinates of one of the officers he testified against. He was arrested in front of his wife and two children, taken to the police station, and put in pretrial detention. Once he was in detention, they started to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in Moscow in December. He nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no um, toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. And after uh, six months of this, his health started to really go into a downward spiral. And he, um, he lost 40 pounds. Uh, he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and having, had really severe pains in his stomach. And he was due to have an operation on, this, on the 1st of August, 2009. Roughly a week before the operation, uh, they came to him and said, if you sign a confession saying you stole the $230 million and you, and you did it at instruction of me, Bill Browder, your, your conditions will improve. And he said, no. And, you know, no one really knows what, what they would do when they're under such duress. I don't mm -hmm. think Sergei could have predicted how he would behave. I don't know how I'd behave. I don't think anyone really knows. But Sergei thought to himself, this is more, it'd be more painful and more horrible to um, perjure myself than it would be to experience all this pain. Yeah, And that's just an incredible thing. I mean, for somebody to place their ideals above their physical above physical pain, you know, it's, it's, it's the stuff, that, you know, Bible's written on, on this stuff. And Sergei turned them down, and as a result, they, they moved him from a prison that had a medical facility to a prison uh, called Butyrka, maximum security prison in Moscow, a medieval prison. It's, it's one of the worst prisons in Russia. And very significantly for Sergei, Butyrka has no medical facilities. And at Butyrka, um, his health completely broke down, 
Um, he went into constant agonizing, ear piercing pain. And anyone who's ever had gallstones or kidney stones or anything like that will know that, that this is one of these things that if, you know, if you have it, you know, you're at the emergency room a couple hours later mm-hmm. and they give you morphine and then they, uh, you know, he had it untreated for four months and they refused him all medical attention. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different requests for medical attention and every single one of his requests was either rejected or ignored. And finally, after four months of this, his body gave out. Uh, he went into critical condition on the night of November 16th, 2009. At that point, the Butyrka prison officials decided to send him over to another prison that had an emergency room. So they sent him over. And when he arrived there, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him for one hour and 18 minutes until he died. He was 37 years old. And so... What does his death do for Putin strategically? Is it just revenge for you? Is it a signal? What is it? I think that that it was a couple things. One is that um, they wanted to um, shut him up because he was saying exactly what they didn't want him to say. So, you know, there's a, there's a saying from Stalin, no person, no problem. And that, that's what they did to Sergei Magnitsky. After Sergei's death, Browder convinced the United States government to freeze assets to suspend the visas of those Russian torturers. Putin retaliated by banning the adoption of Russian orphans, if you remember that story. And Putin put Sergei Magnitsky on trial in 2013. So this, historically, is the first time a dead person has been tried in Europe since the year 800-something, when they did it to a former pope. Anyway, they also have a TV show in Russia. It is called The Browder List. It's a primetime show. It's propaganda blaming Browder for devaluing the ruble, for stealing money, and for murdering his former friend. They say Browder is a CIA agent and an MI6 agent. Putin is being tactical because he knows that if he picks certain prosecutions, one or two high-profile examples like Pussy Riot or Kordakovsky, then he will wield his power, not with gulags, but with symbolism and through the media. Putin has this incapacity to back down, no matter how whatever mistake he's making. He never can, can admit fault or guilt or make a compromise. So what is the sentence now if you ever make the horrible mistake of uh, taking a trip to Russia? What sentence is on your head? Well, in, in reality, it's a death sentence because, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sen- I, I've been convicted and sentenced to nine years in a prison camp, but um, that's not the reason why they want to get me back there. They want to they put me to death like they did Sergei. Do you think Vladimir Putin's the most dangerous man in the world? There's no question because he's, he's, a, he's a kleptocrat, he's a criminal, and he's, got, he's different than mafia criminals. He runs a state with, with nuclear weapons. How could there be somebody less dangerous than that? I mean, he's the most... We, we are in the most difficult moment in, in the history of the last 50 years, and I don't think most people realize it. Bill Browder, author of Red Notice, A True Story of High Finance Murder and One Man's Fight for Justice. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Now, the spiel. People have reported sickness... From a certain frosted oat cereal with sweet surprises, KBC-TV LA has more. 
The FDA investigating Lucky Charms after reports the cereal has sickened some people nationwide. There have been several hundred complaints against the popular cereal, including people reporting they vomited after eating a bowl of it. General Mills, which makes the cereal, says it doesn't believe its cereal is the cause of these illnesses, but it is also it also said that it's conducting its own review. And in Espanol, per Amuletos de la Suerte? Por sus siglas en inglés, tiene bajo investigación cereales de la marca Lucky Charms. So, sounds serious, let's analyze the ingredients of Lucky Charms to see what might have caused the illness. Pink hearts, yellow moons, orange stars, green flowers, blue diamonds, brown fecal matter, and purple horseshoes. I can't tell what it was. Did you pick anything up there? No. Well, the greatest trick the leprechaun ever pulled was convincing the world he wasn't the devil. Now, what's interesting is this. The Lucky Charms outbreak, or supposed outbreak, has been amply chronicled on IWasPoisoned.com. That is, of course, a dating app, toxic masculinity, and so forth. No, it is a well-regarded website that has helped alert companies and authorities over the years that their snacks lead to yaks, that their vittles are causing the sh- You get it. But most large companies actually want to head off these problems, not try to hide them. Think about it. General Mills, the maker of Lucky Charms, three-star general, retired, is much, much, much better off isolating the bad batch or the bad process that made people sick and then correcting it. They'd much rather have it go down like that than having a general sense that there's a leprechaun out there who's trying to get you. But so far, there seems to be no proof That actual Lucky Charms, tested Lucky Charms, Lucky Charms from the same batch that allegedly sickened people, no proof that there's anything in that Lucky Charms, those Lucky Charms, that caused the illness. And at this point, you do have to begin to wonder if the contagion isn't foodborne but social. Though I do have to say, research shows that IWasPoisoned.com does have a pretty good record of pointing out bona fide outbreaks. That's IWasPoisoned.com, an IWP Health Inc. company. That is real. I shit you not, unlike Lucky Charms, allegedly. Going through the complaints on IWasPoisoned.com, a lot of people who claim to be poisoned, by the way, there are some interesting ones that pop out. A consumer who bought her Lucky Charms at King Supers of South Colorado Boulevard, Denver, Colorado, said, I had two bowls of Lucky Charms over 24 hours and experienced severe diarrhea. I still have the box, which is half full. I have had no problems in the past with Lucky Charms. I use water, not milk with my cereal. How do you just drop that in as the last line? I mean, there is a real sickness here, and it's not nausea. Water? With your cereal? Are you also an Evian and Oreos type person? This person bought their Lucky Charms at Sam's Club, Peachwood Center Drive in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Bought a box of Lucky Charms from here approximately one week ago. Discovered upon eating Lucky Terms a few times, I immediately turned sick, nausea and diarrhea. This led me to leaving work twice to deal with noise from eating my breakfast. Oh no. Don't know if those were typos or just, yes, she was being or he was being honest. There was some noise. So most people did get quite unlucky with their lucky charms, but sometimes you make your own luck. Like this lucky charms consumer bought the lucky charms at Consentino's Price Chopper, Northeast Woods Chapel Road, Lee Summit, Missouri. I regularly eat a bowl of lucky charms as a late night snack and have for years. The last two times I have ate a bowl, I have broke out in a sweat, and began exorcist-style vomiting, I started thinking my milk was bad, but bought a new gallon and had the same results. 
Well, I guess you can't accuse that person of jumping to rash conclusions. They did A-B testing, a little scientific method. You've isolated it wasn't the milk. Try it again with the bowl. Once more for the spoon. Similarly, this Bakersfield, California Lucky Charms eater writes, I didn't think it was Lucky Charms at first. I thought I was just feeling sick. So I ate something else. I had soup, chicken, mashed potatoes, water, soda, crackers, and all kinds of stuff. But none of it made me feel that way. Every time I ate Lucky Charms, I would get sulfur burps and I would get nauseous. And sometimes that combination made me puke. Along with the diarrhea that came afterwards, every single time I had a bowl, and here's the kicker, even a brand new box made me sick. (laughs) I used to love Lucky Charms, but this is different. It's not okay. No, but you gave them a chance and another chance and mixed in the soup, mashed potatoes, soda, and crackers and gave them a third chance. I would say yes. Again, you've isolated it. The Lucky Charms. But you know what, my friends? I do have something to confess right here. I'm kind of interested in this. I do not like laughing at people's uh, intestinal distress, but I had a personal reason to focus on this. It is because I am the leprechaun who's been poisoning your breakfast. Well, actually, I am, and my advice is to really sift through those grape nuts, but no, it's something else. It's about how humor works. Because while I had heard about the supposed outbreak, I paid almost no attention to it. And I heard about it in English language and Spanish media. But I didn't really focus on it until Michael Che made this joke on Saturday Night Live a couple of weeks ago. It was reported that at least 139 people around the country have said they became sick after eating the breakfast cereal Lucky Charms. Well, one or two people getting sick could be a coincidence, but 139? That's tragically suspicious. Solid joke, but also a bizarre coincidence because six years ago, when my son was in first grade, my youngest son, he put together what amounted to his first stand-up routine. It was the school talent show, and the topic was... I know some of you might know this cereal is... Lucky Jones! Lucky Charms, and not just anything about the Frosted Oats cereal with marshmallow surprises, but in fact, the iconic jingle. So everyone knows this jingle from it. Frosted Lucky Charms is magically delicious. All right, premise established, and that's when the riffs began. This old video that I'm playing of him, he was, we taped it so he could develop his material, work things on out. You could hear him working out the beats of the bit. But it used to be not that good for you. So this is what it used to be. It's not really nutritious. Okay, he needs to hit that punchline harder. I think we could all agree about that, about the seven-year-old. Uh, not really nutritious. Boom, bang, audience laughs. And with the next bit, his older brother, who is then eight, he had to swoop in to help clarify what Emmett was trying to say. And the leprechaun, he runs away with it. Um, the, the cereal. So he's really quite mysterious. Suspicious. Suspicious. Okay, we can all agree, though, the building blocks are there. It's not that far off a famous late-night comedic institution, Weekend Update, and the kid's seven. Of course, the big criticism of the seven-year-old was what comics always have to deal with too soon. In Emmett's case, it was seven years before anyone got sick of Lucky Charms. But as they say, timing is everything, which is why I think the best advice is when you get sick from Lucky Charms once, Don't go back more than two or three times to try to isolate the illness with different batches of milk. 
And that's it for today's Best of Show. Thank you to Corey Wara, assistant producer, and Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist. And as always, Michelle Pesca, whose actual title is COO of Peachfish Productions. Oomperu depru Thanks for listening.